Welcome back to Beyond the Summit. I'm your host, Jordan Green, coming to you a little bit later in the week. This has been a very, very fast paced week for us here, uh, here in Keene and a bit of a chilly day today. I'm still not quite used to the weather fluctuations of Texas. I'm, it was 80 degrees yesterday. Yeah, it, it started <laughs> at 40 today. I, I'm very much, I'm very much used to like stable, stable weather coming from California. But Texas will throw you for a loop. But here we are. <laughs> We're in the studio here with Pastor Michael Gibson. As always, how you doing, Michael? I am well. Today is a busy day. I came running into the studio and plopped down, and we pressed record. As you said, I've been running hither, thither, and yon this week. Uh, getting ready to leave on a trip, going with our academy on their music tour. So uh, a regular work week is crammed into two and a half days instead of five. Yeah, so. well, then in that case, let's just get right into it. So a couple weeks ago, we talked about the gospel or the good news got legs. And we talked about Acts chapter three, where Peter and John have performed their first miracle through the power of the Holy Spirit. And the uh, subject of their miracle, the, the lame man at the gate has gone off walking and leaping and praising God. And this seems like a very you know, fairy tale ending. And Peter and John did the good deed and they they healed the man and yeah. it should all be a good wrap up to the story. Roll the movie credits. Right, right? exactly, it's roll credits. However, as the idiom goes, no good deed goes unpunished. Right. And we open up in chapter four with Peter and John getting put in the hot seat. You wanna talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so the Pharisees are upset and it's interesting. They're not upset because they healed someone they are upset because of their theological teaching. Mm -hmm. and much of it centers around the teaching that Jesus has been resurrected. And uh, Jordan, you and I have both taken homiletics. And one of the key points in homiletics is to identify your big idea whenever you're writing a sermon. Right, right. And Peter's big idea in this sermon that he has been preaching both it started at Pentecost and now he he stands up and preaches again his big idea is this you killed him but God raised him and the Pharisees or not the Pharisees the Sadducees are upset about that and I find that very interesting that the Sadducees are the ones who come in uh hot and ready to ready to take some names because yeah. as many might know the Sadducees were the political left of the Sanhedrin. They were those who were very much engaged with the Roman Empire. They were very much on a manner of, you know, let's let's work stuff out with the with the Gentiles. Uh, yes. Let's be a little bit more religiously relaxed. But specifically, they had adopted a policy of limited spirituality or limited belief in the supernatural realm. They didn't right. believe in angels and they didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. So of all the groups to really get upset about this, it would make sense that the Sadducees would come down hard on Peter, uh, Peter and John on this one. Right, right. And they're really what's crumbling because of what Peter and John is pre are preaching is their, their authority because of their their belief the downplaying of the spiritual component of religion and the upplaying of the uh, combination of uh, of politics entering the religious sphere and and like you say being more on the the political and religious left uh, they're they're really feeling attacked 
because if Jesus is who he says he is and he was resurrected, then God has some type of authority more than they do. And it deposes them of their seats of power and they're uncomfortable with that. So naturally they grab Peter and John and they, they can't really do much with them in this situation because um, there's a bunch of people around and there's a bunch of people watching and they don't really want to start a riot, the Bible says. And so they just throw these guys in jail. And what stood out to me is this is the very moment that the disciples had hitherto been afraid of. Mm. Before Jesus ascended, uh, when he was when he was recently resurrected, the Bible talks about the disciples hiding in fear. Yeah. They were worried about this exact moment. And now this moment is upon them. Yeah. What do you think that says about kind of the real life? feelings of Peter and John in this moment before they go, before they really go out there um, to start, you know, preaching? You know, I, I see in, in Peter and John a confident boldness. The Holy Spirit has come upon them and they, they just seem ready. Like they're, they're not really caring what other people are thinking about them. And they're, they're putting it out there. They're telling it like it is. And they're being very unapologetic about it. Mm. And I think that that definitely takes a certain type of spirit power because I think often we tend to divest biblical characters of emotion. Yeah. Sometimes we we tend to, in order to vault up their faith or to vault up their their courage in in um, in our own eyes, we kind of take away their in the real moment emotions. And I look yeah. at this story and I can see Peter and John riding this high of like, yeah, we just did this thing by the power of the Holy Spirit. And uh, uh oh, here come the the religious <laughs> leaders and the teachers of the law. And they're yeah. asking all these questions like, well, whose authority to do this? Who gave you the paperwork to do this miracles? Who are you yeah. talking to? Who's this Jesus guy? We killed that guy. Who are you? Doing? And I can imagine Peter and John kind of being like, uh, 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 I, I mean, we, we kind of just, even with that holy boldness, I think that there does come a little bit of of trepidation and i definitely yeah. can see that even in our own lives yeah. you know yeah. speaking to how we approach this this idea of holy boldness you know mm -hmm. do we ever feel like that no good deed goes unpunished that understanding that if you do good in jesus's name there's going to be an oppositional force to you yeah yeah i think that that fear can be paralyzing um, but I, 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 I think we have to come back to, if we truly believe the Holy Spirit's going to be doing what the Holy Spirit says he's going to do, then in spite of that fear or that trepidation, we step forward. And I imagine in, uh, verse eight, when the, the leaders come to Peter and John and they're making the accusation by what power or whose name have you done this? And then it says, Peter filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, and he launches into his response. And that concept of filled with the Holy Spirit, I mean, we, we've seen that the Holy Spirit poured out at Pentecost, mm -hmm. looked at that a couple of weeks ago. But I imagine in the same way that any of us pause to take a breath before we begin to speak, that that breath symbolized that infilling of the Holy Spirit. And so Peter pauses, breathes in, mm. 
and he's filled with the Holy Spirit and then he responds. And so I think when we're facing those moments of trepidation and anxiety over how we might be perceived or someone's being antagonistic towards us because of our beliefs, pause to take a breath. And uh, different uh, Christian traditions uh, call these breath prayers. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the concept of uh, one of the quintessential examples in scripture is when Peter is walking on water after Jesus has invited him out. Right. And Peter takes his eyes off Jesus and begins to sink below the water. And about all he has breath to say is, Lord, help me. And then he's, <laughs> he's in the water. Um, I don't know, Jordan, if you've ever jumped in a pool, uh, but I don't float super well. I don't, I don't float super well either. <laughs> sink to the bottom. There is no like slow drop down. You don't have much time, right? And so in the same way that we we have breath, I think that drawing of the breath in is a symbol of a, a, a an infilling of the Holy Spirit. And there's an old Jewish tradition that talks about uh, how the 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 Israelites and the or more it's more Hebrew tradition, I think, in the Hebrew language that they came to pronounce the name of God as Yahweh, is that it is the vocalization of the sounds of breathing. Mm. So through breath, you can, and I'll try to demonstrate it. Hopefully it's not too weird. If you're listening to this with headphones, you're going you're to get some ASMR treatment right now. <laughs> yes. But the, the word Yahweh, you can say with breath. Mm-hmm. So the breathe in and breathe out with every breath, we proclaim the name of God. And that is a constant reminder to me when I take a breath. I'm calling on the name of God. And that's a good, I like that. That's a very, very practical and very in the moment thing that you can kind of think about whenever you're feeling like you are overwhelmed, overstressed, and and like the world's kind of coming down on you. Just take that moment to do Yahweh, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. and 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 recenter yourself and allow the spirit to really yeah. have its moment in you. Yeah. So they keep Peter and John in jail overnight. Yep. And then they bring him in for a proper trial, if that's what we can call it. Right. And they start asking them a lot of the same questions. By whose authority do you have to do this? Oh, very interesting that that's the main focus of the, of the Sanhedrin at this point, is by whose authority do you have to do this? We didn't give you permission to do this. We didn't give you... You didn't sign off on the right papers. You didn't right. fill out the, you don't have a badge. You don't have, you, who, <laughs> yeah. who told you you could do this? And if there was ever a time for Peter and John to hold back, yeah, yeah, this would be the time to do it. The, the Sanhedrin kind of said, all right, we're going to give you 24 hours to think about what you just said. Yeah. And then we're going to bring you back into the office and we're going to ask you the same question and see if your answer is different. Yeah. And yet, what does Peter do here? He says the exact same thing that he said the night before yeah. or the day before. Yeah. And what kind of holy boldness do you got to have? to really be able to stand. Are we able to have that kind of holy boldness when standing up to that kind of pressure, do you think? Like what gives us that holy boldness today? I, w- I would hope we we do. Uh, and I, I think it, it comes from 
a life lived based on the power and lived out by the working of the Holy Spirit. Uh, you don't you don't get to where Peter is without having a transformational experience with the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. And there's other places in Scripture. I think Paul talks about it when he says, "Don't worry about." what you say when you're called before other religious leaders and, and powers and authority. Cause in that moment, God will give you the words to, to, to speak. And Peter in particular was living out his articulated belief. So he articulated to the religious leaders that there is no other authority in heaven on earth that can save you. Mm-hmm. Wh- whose power and authority do you have? I, I have the power and authority of the of God and of the Holy Spirit. And he acted like it. I think that when we look at Peter's response here, we really get a a dichotomy of two groups of people who understand where true authority comes from. Mm-hmm. Because the Sanhedrin had convinced themselves that they were the authority. And where did they truly feel that they got their authority from? Let's be real, from Rome. They felt that they got their authority to rule over the Jewish people because the Romans, who were the occupying force at the time, allowed them to have that authority. And Peter steps in and says, hang on, hang on, hang on. I've got the authority from the person who you say you get your authority from. And I'm going to tell you about this authority. And like you said, there is no other authority yeah. other than that by which men might be saved. Yeah. Not Rome, not you guys, not nobody. Yeah. Only the name of Jesus Christ. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, I've found it in some business literature and I've also found it in historical uh, works that true authority is only derived mm-hmm. like for for us to to have authority you're you, you're you're speaking on behalf of something else or someone else like none of us truly have authority on our own we we need there there always needs to be something else that that backs that up whether that's uh, a wave of you know political support or finances or et cetera et cetera uh, and Scripture talks about how every other authority on earth, kings, kingdoms, religious powers, all derive their authority from God. And they they don't have anything but by God's grace and, and mercy. And so you're exactly right when uh, the religious leaders stand up and say, whose authority do you have? Well, Jesus, Holy Spirit. And the 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 subtext, the implication, I think, is I'm claiming the same authority that you're claiming, but I'm using it appropriately. That there's a misuse of authority and power by the Sadducees and the religious leaders in this context. Let's spend a second on that because what that made me think of is, I like what you said about that idea that authority must be derived from somewhere. Yeah. And I think it's worth examining for a minute that often we find ourselves in the same situation as the Sanhedrin, Mm -hmm. where we feel that our authority over anything is somehow our birthright, something that we have deserve or something that has been given to us by some other authority other than God. A lot of 
you know, this can go a lot of different ways. Many politicians might believe that they have authority to do what they do because the state has given them power to do it. Yeah. Many of us might feel that we have authority over our children, over our family members, over our friends, over our relationships, even to a certain extent, authority over ourselves. You guys know I couldn't go a week without talking about C.S. Lewis in that he <laughs> says in one of his books, the problem with humans is that is not that they lack a good God. The problem is that each one of us wants to be our own yes. God. What do you yeah. make of that? Yeah, I, 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 th I think that the way that God created us was so that we would be rulers and gods in our own right. Now, I know that's kind of an interesting statement to make, mm -hmm. uh, but you look at what God did for Adam and Eve in the garden. He gave Adam and Eve power and authority to rule over this earth. And God created humans to have that ruling of power and authority on this earth. And so intrins intrinsically in our creation, we're built to hold that power and authority and to work on it. The challenge when evil comes in is that we want to use that power authority, not for someone else's benefit, but for our own benefit. And so I'd agree with Lewis on, on the fact that we all want to be our own gods. Like we, we, we're survivalists. We're survival. I think evil has created us mm. to be survivalists of the fittest that we're self-preservation machines. Like we want to always do what's in our own best interest. Mm -hmm. And what Jesus modeled when he came to this earth, he says, true power and authority lies not in how you govern people, but in how you serve people. And so he flips it around and he says, the greatest among you must become the least, the servant instead of the master. That's right. what I'm calling you to be. And we see that proper use of authority always makes the, the one who's exercising authority be in a position of service while uplifting someone else. And I think about, you know, you're, you're mentioning the different uh, relational dynamics and relationships that we might have. And a further thought on uh, authority always being derived from, from someone else, um, even in those relationships, we only have the ability to speak into someone else's life to the extent that they allow us to do that. Right. You have to, you have to give somebody authority over you in order for them to, to even affect you know, anything that you do. So authority really lies in submission and in surrender. That's where the real power and authority come from. And it's like, like we said last week, anytime God feels like he's taking something from you, he always gives it back to you. So if you yeah. feel like you're submitting yeah. yourself to that authority, rest assured that God's true purpose, once he's gotten rid of all the clamor of self-will and, 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 you know, emotional attachment to ownership that we think we have, he gives us back mm -hmm. that authority, mm -hmm. that autonomy, everything. He always gives it back to us. Yeah. No. So that's the abuse of authority. And Peter just, really brings the house down uh, in, in this uh, discussion with the Sanhedrin, in this trial with the Sanhedrin. And it doesn't go unrecognized by the Sanhedrin because verse 13 starts off saying, now they recognized that these men were uneducated 
and ordinary. And I remember from the sermon, the the <laughs> Greek word that we use is um, id- idiotia. Yeah. It is idiotia, which if nobody needs uh, etymology to figure out what that one came from. <laughs> but they realized that these guys were uneducated idiots. Yeah. But the very next phrase says, and that they had been with Jesus. Right. These guys may be idiots. They may be uneducated but they've been with Jesus. What does that say in those few lines about what being with Jesus gives you the ability and the authority to do? Yeah, it changes everything. It changes everything. Uh, Modern sociologists will say that your personality and character is the combination of your closest five to seven friends. So you are who you are because of the people that you regularly associate with. And if you're wanting to change your character in a direction, being with Jesus is one of the best ways. And it's being with Jesus is the work of a lifetime. And I noted that in the, in the message that Peter wasn't perfect. Um, he wasn't perfect before this. He wasn't perfect during this. And he wasn't perfect after that. And so being with Jesus isn't the, uh, just the, the coupon that you just get to surrender and be like, oh, I'm, I'm good because I've been with Jesus. Well, there's there's work, there's progress, there's life development. Uh, but what being with Jesus does for us, I think, is giving gives us a grounding center. Um, and Peter uses that illustration when he talks to the religious leaders about rejecting Jesus, the cornerstone. Mm. Um, Jesus is the cornerstone on which every part of our faith, every part of our personality and character is now centered upon. And if you're basing your life off of that cornerstone, then every other stone, i.e., foundational belief, characteristic, what you think about life, how you navigate, how you treat people is oriented towards where Jesus, the cornerstone is placed. And I think that's a beautiful picture for how we order our lives. I think too often we, we go after what's desirable and pleasurable and what, what fits us and then try to fit Jesus within the cracks mm-hmm. instead of starting with Jesus himself. And then working out from there and, and allowing a, our lives to be built on a solid foundation. I wrote down in my notes, I said, the work of the spirit is long, tedious, and ongoing. Yes. And that it is not just a singular moment that defines a, a person has been, whether a person has been with Jesus. It is a lifelong process. And I wonder sometimes... What does that look like in me? And I would ask the audience to think about what it looks like in them to have a life where people look at you and say, yeah. you've been with Jesus. Yeah. Th- this person has been with Jesus. Like, do Does someone look at you and say, oh, that person's been with Jesus or that person believes in Jesus? And I think it's something truly introspective to think about. And going off of what you said about Peter, Peter's doing really great here, but as we continue to read through Acts, we realize that Peter's got a lot of hangups. He's, for to use a modern term, he's racist towards Gentiles, and God has to eventually break him of that uh, racism by sending him to Cornelius. You know, right. do not call what God has made clean unclean. Yeah. And 
we really see that process. And I think that one of the things that is really good to take away from this is that being with Jesus is a process. Yeah. It's something you have to do for your entire life. Yes. Yeah. Two really great resources that I would recommend to anyone that wants to understand more about your own uh, spiritual formation and how you're made to be more like Christ. The first one is a classic, Ellen White's Steps to Christ. Mm -hmm. um, 13 chapters, uh, just a beautiful, beautiful work on what Jesus does in our lives and the theology behind that with also a lot of practical tips. Can't recommend that one more. And the other is a, is a new one that's just been released and I referenced it in the, in the message this past Sabbath, um, but it's a book called Practicing the Way by John Mark Comer. Uh, and in that book, he, he lays out his uh, version of discipleship to Jesus centered around three principles, be with Jesus, become like Jesus, and then do what Jesus did. And I think that's, that's the essence of what it means to be a disciple. And when we, we implement those practices in the same way that uh, anybody that's been into sports or has a particular hobby or skill set that they've honed over the years, whenever you started on that particular thing, dribbling a basketball, playing a musical instrument, you weren't good at the start. Mm -mm -mm -mm. I remember playing, trying to play piano and trying to play guitar at a young age. I was not good. <laughs> <laughs> I don't think any of us are good at something when we just first start out in it, you know? I, there there are those annoying people in the world that seem to touch it or do anything and they just pick it up immediately. Oh, right? yeah, the prodigies. <laughs> the, the small percentage. But for the average person like you or me, um, we're not good when we first start. And it takes practice. And it takes discipline. It takes applying your life towards picking up that hobby or that skill set. Uh, you don't become a more patient person by avoiding every opportunity to become patient. You become a patient person by choosing how you respond in opportunities that require patience, right? It's choosing the long lane at, at the stoplight. It's choosing the long checkout at the grocery store. It's, it's purposely placing yourself in a position where you slow down. And when it comes to our spiritual lives, I think sometimes we're frustrated because uh, we have this incredible experience with Jesus and we, we've come to know him as Savior and Lord. And, and then that initial experience dies off and life continues. And you don't just live in this kind of perpetually growing spiritual ecstasy. No, there are hills and there are valleys. There are mountaintops and then there are deep, dark caves that we wander through in, in our spiritual lives. And in the same way that you wouldn't be frustrated with a, a high school or college kid who's trying to, to practice their skills with basketball and, uh, oh, you didn't score that, you didn't shoot that basket or make that basket. You didn't do this. You didn't do that right. Um, you're a bad person. No, you're not a bad person. Absolutely not. You're practicing the skill. And in the same way with our relationship with Jesus and particularly the practice of being with Jesus, it takes time and it takes practice and it takes discipline and applying that uh, Eugene Peterson, uh, we, a couple weeks ago, I talked about this, the long obedience in the same direction, mm -hmm. right? borrowing from Friedrich Nietzsche, um, that applied practice of showing up daily is where the, where the fruit of the spirit grow. And I wrote this down, too, because this I like where, where you're going with this, but something sticks in my head. I wrote this down. You know, Jesus is preparing us to go out. He's preparing us to have this discipline, to have this 
this this long-term experience. But what if we don't want to do that? Like, what if we don't want to have to wait on this experience to happen to us? We just want to go out there and start doing, and we don't want to have to put in the work. We don't want to have to, because effort is hard. And I think that's something that needs to be acknowledged. Effort is hard to do. Discipline is hard to do and to maintain. I've had to struggle recently in adjusting to a new job, disciplining myself to continue to go to the gym because it's so much easier for me to just come home and lie down and and go to bed. And I don't want to do it. I don't want to get up and go to the gym. But I know that I have to. And the thing I want to ask here is, what do you think are some of those things that obviously Peter and John didn't hold back here, but what do you think are some of the things that are holding us back, holding us back from really achieving that holy boldness? I think it's living an extremely comfortable life. Uh, we live in the United States of America. Mm-hmm. Uh, there, yeah, we may not always agree with the politics and policies that are in place. Right, of course not. But when was the last time that you got pulled over on the side of the road and somebody told you you had to go do this or go do that? Like we live free lives where we are the captains of our own ship. We have that authority. We have that authority, right? So I think there's a the the culture in the country within which we live um, provides an atmosphere of extreme comfort. And when we're comfortable, we're not apt to change. Because why change, right? I'm in a I'm in a comfortable position. Mm. So I think that's a big contributor. Uh, I think a uh, the second part of that, or maybe the opposite, the the other side of the coin, is an apathy. Mm-hmm. Or a satisfaction with I'm, I've I've done enough like I'm a good enough person, right? Or uh, maybe the the better way to put that is I'm I'm better than most, or I'm not as bad. <laughs> right, I'm not <laughs> as I used to. I'm be. not as bad is a huge <laughs> one that I hear so often in our in our churches and in our in our institutions is that, yeah. well, you know, I may be doing this sin, but at least I'm not as bad as insert this group here, Whatever. and so I'm good. Yeah. Yeah. And so we play that comparison game and it really makes us apathetic to our own spiritual condition. And really a life with Jesus is a a regular and deep surrender. And the surrender that we give today, it's like a compounding interest on a bank account. Mm -hmm. It feels small right now. And but we've just got to we got to keep showing up. Yeah, as long as you keep showing up, that interest will grow and get bigger and bigger exponentially. But we don't see that in the moment, and it, and it takes the daily, daily surrender uh, on our knees before Jesus. And really, what life is about is giving ourselves to God in order that He might give ourselves back to us, mm-hmm. and for us to healthfully, healthfully do that. It, it requires a certain level of discipline and an application where we're not comfortable, where we're not satisfied, and where we uh, constantly push and drive towards uh, wanting, wanting more, that we open up this thirst and this desire inside of our, our souls for more of Jesus. Mm-hmm. I think that 
as we come to the end of this story, there's a couple of interesting points that I think the author Luke gives us. Number one, the Pharisees can't really find any fault with anything that Peter and John have done. So they give him a stern talking to him and they say, don't, don't talk about that Jesus guy anymore. And Peter and John are like, right, sure, bet. And, <laughs> and they go home. But when they go home, the first thing that the believers do after Peter and John have told them this story is that they get on their knees and they pray. And they acknowledge God by a few names. They call him in verse 20, uh, 25, they say he is creator, revealer, and participator. Yep. Is God still those things today for us? Is he still creator, revealer, and participator in our journey to have holy boldness and to not be held back? Oh, absolutely. Um, I I took the homiletical liberty to uh, uh, kind of summarize the the, the uh, apostles' prayer um, and distill them down to those names. Uh, but yes, I, I absolutely um, I've seen God show up in my life today, this week. He's absolutely participating in in our lives in 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 the immediate moment. And he's a he's continuing to reveal himself to us. He reveals himself to us through scripture, through nature, through the relationships around us. And he's he's the the creator, the the one who creates. And all of creation finds their origin in God, and in the in the name of Jesus. And I think that those those principles, those names for God, are foundational to our understanding of what our relationship with God can be like. And it, it changes things to think that I am I'm someone who was intentionally created. I'm not an accident. I didn't evolve from some primordial goop that mm -hmm. happened to domino in the right direction that I have life. Uh, and that same creator decided that it would be important that he reveal himself to us. And he spent history doing that. And that revelation leads us to see how he participates in the ongoing history of my life and the people around me and the rest of the world. I like in the conclusion of this prayer, the, the believers ask for three things. They ask for God to hear the threats of their accusers. They ask him to give them this holy boldness that we've been talking about for the past couple of, of, of sermons. And then finally, they ask him to allow them to heal in the name of Jesus. Mm -hmm. Now, I also notice what they don't ask him for. They don't ask him to make all of their opposers go away. Yeah. They don't ask him to make them courageous in all situations, all the time, at every second. And they don't ask him to go move mountaintops and do and do miracles in in to to be made famous for. They ask him to hear them, to pay attention and acknowledge them, to give them the boldness in the moment to do what he needs them to do and to allow them to heal people yeah. in Jesus's name. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, that's all we really need to ask for in that situation, to be able to be heard, to be bold and to heal in the name of Jesus. And I think that's ultimately what it really means to be a part of God's church and part of his discipleship in this earth. Thanks for joining us for Beyond the Summit. 
If you liked what you heard, make sure to follow us on our podcasting platforms or joining us for our summit service on Sabbath. We look forward to seeing you next week as we continue to go further up, further in, and beyond the summit. <laughs>